Welcome to Leaders Recon, where we will be discussing leadership, warrior skills, and other unique opportunities within the G3 Leader Development Branch. I'm your host, Joshua Carr, and today we're going to be discussing the National Security Council with a former director at the National Security Council staff, Colonel Adam Ake. Sir, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. So you've had quite a background from, you know, I, I read through your bio there and we're looking everything from a West Point graduate, Rhodes Scholar, deployed and then served here as a director um, at the National Security Council staff. So before we dive into like the retirement spiel ceremony of all of your achievements, what's like a, a, what's an unusual fact about you that even people that know you might not be as aware of? Well, uh, I'm probably the less important of uh, within even within my family the less important army officer so i'm, I'm married to uh, the director of the military hiv research program colonel julie ache uh, and together we have four kids and uh, so I'm, I'm married to a superwoman so as as impressive as i look on paper i am uh, amply eclipsed within my household oh really yeah. and, and you one of your children's at west point now is that correct my oldest uh, daughter elizabeth is a is a plebe up at the west point right now so yeah, but my wife was was very disappointed uh, at her going to a trade school because my wife's a Stanford grad. Oh, really? Yeah, and that was uh, so she decided that uh, West Point was a decidedly second-rate education compared to where she went to school. And when you look at admission standards, I, I tend to have to agree. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it's tough. So she uh, she accepted the fact that her brilliant uh, firstborn uh, deigned to uh, to follow her father as opposed to following mom's uh, footsteps at least directly. So, and how did that connection happen with you guys? Did you meet early on in your career or was that? So we met a couple of weeks before I graduated from West Point. And this is one of these stories about how, uh, how geeks mate. Uh, so we met at a, a conference on Winston Churchill that was sponsored by the International Churchill Society. And for me, it meant getting a free trip to Palo Alto to go read, read two books about Churchill and then talk about him. Um, uh, they had a lot more Stanford undergrads there because it was, it was right in the neighborhood. And so I had intended to go out and, and see some high school classmates that had gone to Stanford. I had two classmates from my high school in Anchorage, Alaska that had gone to Stanford. And uh, as soon as I laid eyes on my wife, I forgot all about seeing my, my classmates. And by the end of the weekend, I'd proposed marriage. So she hadn't accepted, but she, uh, she hadn't said no either. So that was, uh, I knew I had to strike while the iron was hot because the odds of me ever seeing her again, absent uh, some sort of uh, bold move was uh, vanishingly small. Well, hey, that, it looks like it worked out for you, though. Uh, worked out for one of us. Uh, <laughs> so then, uh, you know, on that note, you uh, you served active duty time then for a while, and then went into the and then went into the guard, right? Yeah, we were largely driven by uh, f child considerations. Really, I uh, I commanded a company at Fort Lewis, and uh, she had gone to the University of Washington for medical school. And she came on active duty in 2003, right after the, the war in Iraq broke out in earnest. And I was in the 2nd Striker Brigade. And we still had to do about six months of training off post, and then we we're going to hit a, a one-year deployment. And I was looking at being gone in the next 18 the next, or 18 in the next 24 months, and we had a 12-month-old uh, to take care of. And so we didn't really have any family support in the area. So when the going got tough, the, uh, the not-so-tough guy here went to, went to law school, which is also known as the Great American Plan B. And so... I uh, commuted up to the University of Washington uh, after my last year commitment. I, I moved up to be the uh, Secretary of the General Staff for First Corps uh, Command Group up there. And uh, then transitioned to the Washington Guard when I found out I could 
get most of the tuition waived by joining the Guard as opposed to going in the Army Reserve. Mm. And so that was a decisive factor for me of going in the Guard. And then after I joined the Guard, then I learned, oh yeah, well, that's where all the ground combat arms are and the reserve component. So I just kind of lucked into the right component for being able to stay in the MTO combat arms world, uh, at least in the part-time side. So, so then you mentioned the Great American Plan B, because yeah. I'm, I'm with you there, because I was looking at attending law school here. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of that, though, you, you know, spent some time here doing uh, strategy and then, you know, in policymaking. Can you give us an overview as we dive into the National Security Council and, like, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, like what is the National Security Council in a nutshell and, and, and how does it operate? Yeah, so everybody's heard of the National Security Council, but very few people kind of understand what it is actually in law versus what people are really thinking of is usually the National Security Council staff. So the National Security Council was created as part of a large reorganization of the U.S. military and the foreign policy enterprise. The 1947 National Security Act not only created the Secretary of the Defense, uh, as well as the Office of Secretary mm-hmm. of Defense, uh, created the Central Intelligence Agency, created the Department of the Air Force, and then, oh, by the way, it also created this thing called the National Security Council. So in statute, the National Security Council is the person of the President, the Vice President, the Secretary of State, the then Secretary of Defense, and originally it had the, the service secretaries too, the Navy Secretary okay. and the, the Secretary of the Army. Over time, the service secretaries got stripped out uh, actually, the Secretary of the Air Force was in there, too, because that was a brand new position. Uh, over time, the service secretaries have gone away as the Office of the Secretary of Defense and, and DOD has strengthened vis-a-vis the military departments. Uh, and the military departments focus just more on uh, man training and equipping versus operations, right? Roger. So uh, they lost their foreign policy role mm-hmm. uh, as the, uh, the Secretary of Defense accreted those powers or those uh, planning responsibilities for operational um, application of, of forces. And over time, they've added the Secretary of Energy because of the nuclear weapons mm-hmm. aspect of energy. Uh, Secretary of Treasury actually got added to. Uh, and so those are the, the statutory members. And then uh, after 9-11, under the Bush administration, Congress stood up a parallel Homeland Security Council. And that was... Uh, uh, same cast of characters in terms of the president, the vice president, but you had the secretary of Homeland Security and then a, a number of other departments which would okay. have been relevant to Homeland Security. Under the Obama administration, those two uh, councils merged. And so the National Security Council uh, now usually has the, the secretary of Homeland Security in there as well. Um, by policy, the president expands the membership uh, beyond what the statute prescribes. So in practice, if there's actually a National Security Council meeting, there will be other people there, including members of the intelligence community, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff will be there, uh, as well as anybody else whose equities are directly implicated by the, the issue that they're, they're considering. So that's the National Security Council formally. What everybody thinks of for the National Security Council is the large staff, uh, which actually isn't even a dedicated staff in the sense of they aren't White House employees. So the the staff is made up of detailees primarily from all those constituent departments of the National Security Council. So 
the big ones, the big donating, donating, branch, donating branches or uh, departments and agencies would be the De Defense Department, State Department, uh, the intelligence community, and then Homeland Security would be the, the okay. other big uh, donators of people. Because there's, there's various levels, right? Am I, am I understanding that? So there's various levels of meetings. Okay. Uh, so the staff then organizes and has the powers delegated to them by the president, uh, who delegates powers to the National Security Advisor, which is a completely non-statutory position. It's nowhere in statute. Uh, the person, the National Security Advisor, is just another assistant to the president for national security affairs. Uh, each administration, usually one of the first things they'll do is write a executive order in the series that deals with foreign policy. And the names change every administration. In this particular administration, it's called a National Security Presidential Memorandum. And so right now, the governing document for the National Security Council staff is NSPM 4, National Security Presidential Memorandum 4. And that basically gives the National Security Council staff the ability to call meetings to coordinate the foreign policy of the United States. And so the staff is broken up uh, in different ways, but usually there's, there's some continuity of, of how the staff is organized. And generally it's organized into regional directorates and then functional directorates. And so I was in the defense policy directorate, which is one of the functional directorates that's kind of cross-cutting across okay. all the regions of the world. But then there was a, a Europe, uh, and Russia directorate, there's a Asia directorate, a South Asia directorate, a Middle East and North Africa directorate, that sort of thing. So uh, anyway, there's a number of directorates. Each one has a senior director, and then they have a number of policy directors, again, that are mostly detailees from other agencies. And so I was one of those policy directors within the, the defense policy directorate. So, and then you served there for? Almost two years. Almost two years, okay. So then how, so you worked on defense policy on that cross-functional team, like, did you get to interact then with a lot of the other groups or how does that kind of work? Yes, so I attended a lot of regional meetings as the functional representative uh, and vice versa, the, the regional folks attend a lot of meetings that the functional directorates hold. Okay. So. In my case, I went mostly to Middle East meetings and then I picked up Europe meetings as well. So I was still in the room when a lot of the, the application of foreign policy was discussed. Uh, I was looking at it through a defense policy lens. And then I would go back to my senior director after the meetings and let him know what was going on so he could stay abreast of what was going on throughout all the, the regionals. Um, likewise, if, if there was something in my wheelhouse uh, where I was calling a meeting and it applied to one of the regional, you know, specific region, um, not only would, would they come, but then I would call all the appropriate uh, officials from affected departments and agencies that were relevant to the issue that I was uh, advancing some agenda on. So then when you, without diving into anything like classified or whatever, but like, can you give us kind of overview of like how the, you talked about, you called some meetings and stuff. So. How does that work with, you know, as a member of the staff? I mean, obviously the principals can't make all those decisions, you know. So, like, how does that work within the echelons and, like... Exactly, yeah. So, we, there are th three level of meetings formally that are laid out in the NSPM 4 below a, a formal National Security Council meeting. So, the lowest level meeting is, is what we call a policy coordinating committee. And those are called in order to either 
kind of shepherd an existing issue. Mm -hmm. So there have been, and sorry, I'm going to use one acronym here, PCCs, Policy Coordinating Committees. Uh, there have been PCCs probably on Cuba going for the last 60 years, okay. right? That's a, that's a never-ending issue. The Iran PCC has probably been going since the Iranian Revolution in the late 70s. Um, so there are ongoing PCCs. We will also call new PCCs if a new discrete issue arises, or we'll have a sub-PCC of an existing long-running PCC. Uh, PCCs can be called under NSPM4 by a senior director, but usually the action officer is the one that prepares the agenda, uh, notifies everybody, schedules the room. I mean, we're, we don't have any staff below us, so the directors are really the action officers. Uh, and then what NSPM4 gives the National Security Council staff power to do is bring tertiary level officials in for those PCCs. So when I say tertiary level, I mean number three in the affected department agency. Uh, DOD underguns a bit, they don't send assistant secretaries. Usually we'll get deputy assistant secretaries, so you know, four, four levels down. Uh, but in other agencies where they don't have quite the multiple echeloning like DOD headquarters, um, you know, they'll, they'll have a number three level official at a, like at the assistant secretary level. Now, um, policy coordinating committees are not meant to create a recommendation for the president. Uh, they're meant to develop options. They're meant to ensure that issues are raised and that everybody kind of has their ability to bring up uh, things that other departments and agencies may just not be aware of. Uh, it, you know, per certain equities, viewpoints, that sort of thing. Uh, so if, if there is something that needs to be recommended to the president for action, at a minimum, things will get elevated to a, what's called a deputies committee meeting. And deputies okay. committee meetings are called by the deputy national security advisor and chaired by the national deputy national security advisor, and they consist of the number two level officials from all those relevant departments and agencies. So you'll ha from the military, it'll be the deputy secretary of defense, or more more frequently, they'll send the undersecretary of defense for policy, uh, and then from the joint staff, it'll be the vice chairman of the joint chief. Hmm. Will will attend from DoD uh, at. Deputies are expected to be able to commit their agencies or their departments to action, mm -hmm. whereas the policy coordinating committee meeting, it's, it's really just airing potential options. At the deputies committee level, uh, they can talk about, hey, what are we going to do for this? And if DOD says, we'll pony this up, and their, their representative says, the, say, we'll, we'll pony up this resource to address this issue, and everybody's in agreement, then they will dispense with any other meetings. Uh, most likely, the deputy national security advisor uh, will make sure that the minutes get super sent out. So an action officer like me will take down all the notes. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll circulate a summary of conclusions about what was decided. If there's no exceptions taken to that, uh, that becomes the formal document of the interagency decision-making process or recommendation process. Mm -hmm. And the deputy national security advisor will go to the national security advisor and say, hey, Look, if we do need a presidential decision on this, uh, I recommend we just go forward because we got consensus at the deputies level. If, uh, if that doesn't, doesn't happen, then they'll elevate it one more level. It'll be a principals committee meeting. That'll be chaired by the national security advisor. They'll have all the secretaries or administrators of the various agencies will attend in person. Um, they'll see if they can achieve consensus. If not, uh, 
then the options are either call a full National Security Council meeting chaired by the president and attended by the vice president as well. Or uh, in many cases, if the president is willing to take a, a report of the majority opinion and the minority opinion, which is probably more frequent than actually having National Security Council meetings in this administration, then the National Security Advisor will prepare the, the summary conclusions and say, well, you know, this was this is where these departments lined up versus where you know, the, the, the opposing view lined up. Uh, and then at least with the current National Security Advisor, his position is I'm not going to give my recommendation to the president unless he asked me specifically. Uh, other National Security Advisors have been more proactive in submitting their own recommendations in those cases. Um, but again, with all this, this is just a decision-making tool for the president. So the National Security Council, unless the, you actually have a National Security Council meeting where the president is there, it is not a decision-making body. It is a, a way to generate options. It's a way to uh, make sure that all the relevant information is shared across the departments and agencies. And we te tease out any areas where the president needs to make a decision. Um, and then if necessary, we get, uh, the National Security Advisor will go to the president with the outcome of that process. Hmm. Uh, the president can short circuit that process. And we, we are really just his staff on foreign policy. So if the president comes in with a directed course of action, then you can flip the whole process and the National Security Council staff can be an implementing staff. So we can be basically writing a strategy and telling the departments and agencies, hey, this is what the president wants to do. This is the end state. And these are your resources kind of writ large. Uh, this is maybe where it prioritizes versus other national interests. Uh, and then we can direct all the relevant departments and agencies to come up with implementation plans and resourcing requests. So part of their plan of implementing, say, the national security strategy is, well, if you want us to do this, this, and this in this order, this is the resources we're, resources we're going to need uh, and come back as an iterative process. But, so you mentioned the national security strategy there, sir. Does that, does the, did the National Security Council develop the national security strategy? Yes. And then, you know, on that note, like how does that, you mentioned it's, it's a body meant for developing options and providing information across functional organizations and whatnot. How does that work on the way down? Does the staff get utilized as information is being passed on the way down? Uh, the president makes a decision about, you know, X, Y, Z, or, you know, what does NC play in that role? So this is a tension that it's possible and prior administrations have used the National Security Council staff to get into a little bit more of the minutia and the operational details of implementing presidential decisions. The philosophy of the current administration is we don't want to do that. We want to stay at the policy national end state articulation and kind of resource prioritization level. Uh, we don't want to get in, involved as, as a staff in what each of the organizations is doing on the ground as much as possible. Now, there are certain instances where a very discreet action on the ground just carries such significant strategic consequences that we can't avoid it. Um, and, and some things just require action at the highest level because of the way the laws are written um, or just because of the sensitivity uh, of a particular action. So certain things like arms sales. Um, Which made all, they made all the news. Well, right. So you've just got, you've got some things that you, you can't 
quite stay out of the weeds with and the National Security Council staff still gets involved at sort of the, the, the each level. So how does that work then? You mentioned foreign policy several times here on, you know, throughout it. So how does the, I guess, National Security Council differ from, you know, solely what um, the State Department is doing as far as like providing options and solutions and stuff like that to, to issues? I mean, is it specifically focused on, you know, security related interests or how does that, so, uh, how does that dynamic work? So the National Security Council was created to provide a, a sub-cabinet body um, to deliberate and coordinate on foreign policy. So this was a, a bit of a response to World War II where you did not, going into the war, did not have a body like that. And so there was an ad hoc uh, chief of staff to the president. They had Fleet Admiral Leahy. Uh, who was a retired chief of naval operations that came in and he acted as more or less the first national security advisor under president roosevelt you had even the the body of the joint chiefs of staff was an an ad hoc non-statutory creation just for the war uh, and what really the the national security council and the national security act was meant to do was try to prevent another instance where we fight a war where the navy department was fighting one war in parallel with the War Department, like in the Pacific, where you had the War Department's war under, under MacArthur and the Navy Department was fighting a war under Nimitz. And they were pursuing two different campaigns and competing for resources and sharing resources, but it was, there was no referee below the presidential level because you had these service secretaries that had operational responsibilities. Um, and so in, during the complexities of the Cold War, it became obvious that it, not only did we want to use the military tool, but we wanted to use all these other tools of national power to avoid fighting a hot war, right? Mm, yeah. So we want to use our economic tools. We want to use diplomacy as much as possible. We want to use the threat of force from the Defense Department, but we don't actually want to use that, right? So we, we want to use all these instruments of, you know, dime, diplomatic, informational, military, economic power uh, to accomplish our objectives in the Cold War. And so that's really all those things come into what the National Security Council staff is meant to coordinate across those departments and agencies that, that have those powers. So then kind of shifting, I guess, a little bit, talking about a lot of the big policy things are, I'm assuming the National Security Council is also involved with like pressing you know, time-sensitive national security issues or, you know, crises, you mm -hmm. might call. Absolutely. What's, uh, can you explain, like, how that works in, you know, a fat, you know that fast-paced environment sure. um, and or, you know, tying that in with, like, what we experience right now, you know, even with, like, COVID-19, was, did, did that get brought into, yes. like, the National Security Council as a, as a threat? And, like, how does that look from your perspective? So in addition to the, let's say, routine NSPM4 process where we have policy coordinating committee meetings and we, we stew and on these issues for a while and keep having meetings until we come up with something good and then we elevate it up for a decision or recommendation of the president. We also have reactive uh, meetings, which can, can be reactive PCCs, uh, but it can also be a reactive DC we can have a reactive National Security Council meeting. Uh, there have been a couple over the last couple of years. Uh, 
in response to big events mm -hmm. that, that have big implications, right? So there's no requirement that you do a PCC first. There's no requirement that you know, any of these things happen in any particular order. It's really, again, it's just a, a decision-making tool for the president. So, uh, so one, one of these happens, big events. Um, paradigmatic case that, that people can talk about openly now is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there was like an ongoing National Security Council meeting for weeks. Like it was you know, meeting every day, coming up with, with options, and it was up at the principal level. It was the secretary level from uh, you know, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, uh, Attorney General for some reason was in there uh, yeah, uh, and wrote a book about it afterwards. Uh, so uh, about that then, like, you know, what is, I guess, what does your day look like as, you know, as a, a director on the staff there? What did your day look like as part of the National Security Council staff? Yeah, so typically have one or two policy coordinating committee meetings a day that I was, Primarily attending, usually wouldn't have one that I called, uh, but every few weeks because I, I had a limited number of issues where I was the lead on, and a lot of things we could do didn't require in-person meetings. Mm -hmm. Particularly, the defense policy director was an interesting one too because our our mandate or our superpower of calling meetings to drive process only really works when there was more than one department and agency involved. Mm -hmm. And so if the only department involved is the Department of Defense, then it was a little sensitive because we're trying to get into their knickers and there's really not a cross-cutting, in terms of cross-cutting across the government, uh, reason to call them in. So a lot of what I was doing was, was uh, a little bit more diplomatic of uh, you know, trying to get, get, get some movement through OSD or, or through joint staff on particular issues. But... I definitely did have, you know, some some things where I was the lead on a uh, a particular discrete security strategy that ended up being published, um, and and signed after it was signed by the president uh, that affected all the foreign policy departments and agencies. So that was that was a one that I I ran the process from kind of cradle to grave all the way through publication strategy. So you mentioned. Uh, you were there for about two years. Did you get a chance to work on like the national security strategy stuff that came out? So the national security, the current national security strategy published at the end of 2017. Okay, like so, I can remember if it's like 17 or 18. Anyway, right yeah. There. So I came in uh, about nine months after it had published. So we were still working on getting implementation plans from some of the departments and agencies, uh, as well as we were doing in stride reviews of how effective it had been. Um, so DOD had been very forward-leaning and they had a team that was working essentially with the national security staff. Uh, as the national security strategy was being written, they were writing the national military strategy to make sure it was nested. And so the, the NMS came out pretty quickly on the heels of the NSS, uh, but other departments and agencies didn't quite have the manpower to to dedicate or you know lean that far forward, and so they were taking various amounts of time. Well, and as a policy person, sir, can you give us some kind of scope of you know what is the difference between the national security strategy and the national defense strategy or the national military strategy? Oh, sorry, yeah, I meant the national. So we had the yeah, you're right. The NDS was the one that I'm I'm referring to, not the national military strategy. So uh, nested documents 
so the national security strategy lays out, um, I mean, kind of uncharitably, you could just call it a wish list of all the things that we would like to see happen around the world. Um, this national security strategy was a little bit different in that it at least implicitly prioritized a lot of the, the objectives, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it prioritized what regions we were going to focus on and what potential competitors or adversaries we were going to focus on. That made it different uh, than prior national security strategies that studiously avoided making hard choices about prioritization. But even the current national security strategy you can fault for uh, failing to make explicit decisions in terms of how we're going to prioritize uh, different end states, hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the policy objectives. So the, the national defense strategy is looking at that national security strategy through what do we as a defense department, including all the fourth estate, so national security agency, hmm. you know, national reconnaissance office, NGA, all the defense agencies, in addition, you know, the intel community parts, DIA, in addition to the, the military services, and say, as a, as a defense department, how are we going to implement the national security strategy? So, for one, the scope is just DOD, although DOD is a huge scope. Um, what the national defense strategy did, because the national security strategy hadn't, uh, and I'll credit then Secretary Mattis for making sure that this was in, included, was an express prioritization as opposed to implicit prioritization. Mm -hmm. So uh, national security strategy lists priorities, but doesn't put numbers in front of them. The national defense strategy said, we are gonna focus on great power competition. Uh, and basically it was China, and we're gonna focus on a revisionist Russia, and then we're gonna make a, a big break, and the number three priority way behind number two is the Middle East. And then everything else was even lower. So that's what the national defense strategy did. And the defense department started running with that, that those types of prioritizations. So um, it, it is more of a useful narrowed guide for the defense department. And then that, of course, uh, when it came to what the joint staff and the uniform services were gonna be doing, then that became the national military strategy was effectua effectuating the NDS. So then, sir, kind of tying that back into some of your experiences there. Um, I, mean, I mean, essentially, a lot of the work that you guys are doing is, is setting huge sweeping policy that impacts, you know, the entire entirety of the National Guard, too, specifically. But what it, you know, tying that in for guardsmen to understand, like, how does the policy work that is happening you know, that feeds the national security strategy that you guys are doing at the, on the National Security Council staff impact, you know, guardsmen um, down in, in some of the changes they're seeing with the shift to great power competition. So it certainly has a, you know, a, a following impact from, you know, the, the DOD and all the services uh, are very hard ships to steer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, are almost like, it's like steering a train. Maybe a little easier than that, but uh, yeah, nothing's turning on a dime in the Defense Department. And part of that is just the budgeting process and, and programs. Some of it's the inflexibility in funding from Congress because it's uh, either earmarked or it's, it's just committed in, in some sort of program of record that you, know, you can't just take a bunch of money and, and reprogram without going back to Congress 
over and over and over again. Um, and some of it's just the, the DOD's own internal spending plans, the, the FIDEP, the, the five-year, whatever that stands for. Yeah. So all these things uh, militate against rapid change uh, because that's not only true at the department level, and then you have to get down to the individual services of what they're programming. Uh, and so it, the flash to bang of a prioritization change in terms of foreign policy prioritization, the impact is, is only going to be felt in many cases, unless we're talking about an operational deployment that's short notice. If you're talking about how we're going to be differing our training and equipment uh, and doctrine, all that stuff is a response that's going to take, uh, you know, in peacetime, absent the, the urgency of active combat, it's probably going to take several years, right, to, to actually work its way down into what the average soldier in an operational unit is seeing. So for you kind of you hit it there a little bit on the implications might be, take years to be felt by by line level leaders, but as line level leaders are looking forward, you know, within the guard specifically, you know, should they be referencing the national you know security strategy and the national defense strategy and like looking forward or where should they kind of look for some of that guidance, you know, the outside of, you know, what they're receiving one echelon above when they're forecasting out training and looking at, you know, their three to five years out. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend anybody blow off, you know, sort of their chain of commands priorities, right? I mean, that's Absolutely. that's still what you, you got to focus on. From a individual perspective, I think it's it, it's helpful to to know which direction the force is going uh, in terms of doctrine and opportunities that can follow that. Um, I mean, with just one case in point. We're going to get a lot more involved with with rocket-based artillery, right? It's it's a mission that's it's going to come to the army. Some of it could be back to coastal defense. Could be, you know, how do we defend islands against sea-based invasion? And you know, you start looking around, and hey, we can we can use some of these artillery assets to target movers out at, out at sea. Um, in addition, air defense is is going to be a, a growth industry as well. So. Um, you know, I think it, it can be helpful when you're talking about making your own decisions about, hey, maybe I need to, to look into cyber stuff because that's going to be a, a really contentious field uh, that's going to be a growth industry, right? And how do, how do you mentor uh, other people uh, when they ask you for advice? So I think it is helpful to leaders to be conscious of um, some of those imperatives that you, you might have to read between the lines because, again, the national security strategy is not going to say, oh, Army, you need to do this. You know, it's not going to get to even the service level granularity. Um, but when, you, when you're talking about sort of missions and you, you can imply back from, uh, you know, what, what are our end states? Okay. You know, what, what does that imply for the Army in terms of what it's, what it, what it's going to be asked to do in terms of ground combat and then all the supporting aspects of ground combat? Um, so I, you know, again, I, I, it's tough because you, you, the services are going to have to decide, uh, you know, it goes through many filters about, or, you know, levels of, down. yeah, of how to implement, uh, those strategies. So, you know, probably a better document for service members to look at would be the national military strategy because it's already been distilled down two levels, right? Uh, 
and that'll give you a view of what's going to, how the army then is going to change its ADPs. Uh, yeah, you could, you can see some of that between the lines by reading the national military strategy, for instance, right? Um, when you, and we've seen even some of that already with like some of the restructuring within the IBCTs that they've been doing a little bit, you know, for instance, you know, with the shift to the large scale ground combat and well and and uh retooling or heavying up several brigade combat teams to armor brigade mm -hmm. uh types so yeah there's but again the the services are going to be constrained because of that uh the, the the budgeting process and even the acquisition process all these other things act as as huge retardants for rapid uh organizational change, especially when you're talking about equipment. I mean, you can do leadership changes relatively quick. You can do training changes relatively quick. Uh, it's the material stuff that just the way the process works right now uh, between the budgeting and actually the acquisition process, it, it takes a long time. And then, of course, you, you don't want to employ new doctrine if too much. If One, if you're ahead of the actual materials that's going to be needed, uh, you know, it doesn't make much sense to change the doctrine and then not have any stuff to train with. I, I did that at the Second Striker Brigade, where yeah, we turned in all our old stuff, and then we sat and waited for a year, and we actually watched the National Guard Brigade across the highway mobilize, deploy to NTC, and deploy to Iraq before our active duty formation went, because again, we were leaning so far forward in the dot milf. Yeah, the, the, the whole transformation uh, process that, you know, we, we got ahead of the material stuff. And so we had all this doctrine and no vehicles and you know, no material to actually fight with. So it was, uh, it was a little humbling back in, in 2002, 2003. So talking back then a little bit more on your personal experience uh, as uh, a member uh, or a director on the NSC staff, what was, you know, I guess like, you know, was there a really unique experience that you had or memorable experience that you can tell us about that was kind of the highlight of your time there? So getting presidential approval on anything that you'd been working on was was a highlight. I mean, it, it, some things I was, I, for instance, I was directly responsible for uh, handling all the military nominations with three and four star officers as they came over. That was more routine because the, the decision had already been done. All we were doing is just doing, you know, a little bit of policy level review uh, for nominees, right? So we weren't really involved in the decision-making process. Um, so that, you know, when the president's signing those, that, that was just kind of pro forma, like, yeah. you know, didn't take any particular joy in that or, or, uh, or but once, you know, if it was something that uh, had been something my boss wanted to work or something the National Security Advisor wanted to work or it came in uh, as a request, um, I think the biggest, probably the, the, the one that happened most recently was uh, getting a presidential unit citation approved for the 30th Infantry Division out of North Carolina. So it came in to my desk as a request. Uh, the regular army had already turned down a, uh, a request or petition for review. Long story associated with it. At one point, the 
the, the president, then it was called a distinguishing citation, had been approved by the Army uh, Decorations Board at the end of World War II, but then de denied at the service secretary level because they didn't want to approve any more of those at, at a division echelon. They wanted mm. to push it back down to regiments and below. Um, and so the governors of four states that the, that World War II 30th Infantry Division formation was drawn from uh, had all signed a letter to the president and that came into my office. And so I was able to work uh, on getting all the background of you know why the army made the decision it made, and then ultimately uh, get that before the president for approval. Um, and then I was even invited to the uh, the reunion of the 30th this summer, and I went down to uh, to North Carolina, and I was there when they were able to hang that president's unit citation streamer on the division colors, and there were a couple of surviving veterans from the Battle of Mortain, which was the August 1944 battle for which they, they received the award. Oh, wow. So that was, in terms of like being able to walk it through the whole process and then actually get to see the impacts of, you know, the people that, uh, you know, it affected. Mm -hmm. um, that was that was probably the most... Yeah, that's a super cool experience, yeah. yeah. T t speaking of that, like broadening type of experiences, you... Uh... You served there for two years, right? Um, were you 06 going into that mm -hmm. position? Is that typically the case? Is it, you know, what kind of billets and like how many guardsmen were you working there? And, you know, what's the, I guess, broadening opportunity there for guard soldiers that are looking to kind of dive in more, like you said, into the, the policy strategy world of things? Yeah. So when I first got there, there was one other guard officer on the staff, and that was Major General Julie Bentz uh, from the Oregon Guard. And she was actually on her, I wanna say her third stint at the National Security Council staff. Oh, wow. And she was a Medical Service Corps officer, but had done uh, her PhD in, in basically the effects of radiation on people. It was like from a health perspective, I believe. Um, so she, had several times been in uh, what we call the Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate or uh, Resilience Directorates uh, that, that deal with kind of preparation for any kind of large-scale conflict like that. Uh, and most recently, she had been at Defense Threat Reduction Agency and was detailed back over, and she was the, the deputy director for the Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate when I first got there. So she retired out of that job and I was the only other guard soldier. The other, uh, then later we got two more guard members that came in. Uh, one had been an aide to the FEMA director. Uh, it was a guard funded position. He was detailed over to the FEMA director. And then uh, he came over to our resilience directorate to uh, run the, the um, what did he do? So he was doing exercises, national level preparedness okay. exercises, as well as, uh, yeah, the resilience director has a pretty heavy FEMA load over there, but so he was able to speak to what the military capacities were because he had been kind of over at FEMA for that role anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was a Florida uh, Title 30, 32 AGR, unlike uh, Julie Bentz and I were both M-Day, so, uh, but she had done a lot of ADOS tours using her, her acquired skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other guard member that, that came over had just finished up 
National War College, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jay Rose, who had been a prior congressional fellow. And so he's he'd done a lot of work in legislative affairs and he came over to work in the legislative office. Uh, so again, using a skill that was directly applicable. So he had acquired it on a Title X program. Mm -hmm. um, and he was another AGR uh, officer. So I think he, right now he's a Title X, but had been Title 32 in Massachusetts was his home state. So. So if there's guardsmen then that are, you know, earlier on in their careers, they're looking for like, you know, I'd, I'd like to have opportunity to contribute on in, in this fashion, you know, like what you did, you know, I guess what's some of your piece of advice to them earlier on? Like when should they look to kind of specialize and get some of those skill sets? And So I, I think the big takeaway is you're not going to be hired for your martial prowess, right? So nobody uh, is hiring you because you're the best trigger puller or the best shooter uh, or the best artilleryman. Uh, that's really not a, a skill that anybody's looking for at that level. So what you, you can bring if, if you're you know, very, very steeped in uh, domestic support operations, then you know, maybe the resilience directorate is, is a place where you could land. Again, if you've got legislative background, maybe that's a place where you land. Uh, I was just fortunate that I, not only am I a lawyer, uh, but I've worked in a number of, you know, I'm a federal prosecutor or so had, and had prior experience working on a, a task force uh, right after President Obama came into office. I was detailed over from DOD General Counsel's office where I was there as a civilian uh, to work on the detention policy task force, which was how we were going to deal with terrorists that we uh, ran into outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was basically like... Uh, are we going to keep Guantanamo going? Are we going to switch to federal uh, Article Three trials, basically trials only in federal court to go after terrorists? Do we want to keep commissions viable as a, a trial alternative? Uh, do we want to use law of war detention uh, like what we're doing at Guantanamo, where we basically say until the end of hostilities uh, with these named groups, Al-Qaeda and its uh, successor organizations, that anybody that we run across, we're just going to hold under the the, the law of armed conflict, uh, either until the war ends or they die. Uh, so those were the the policy issues we were wrestling with, and that was almost like what the National Security Council policy coordinating committees do. So that we had had a detailed staff, we were housed over at the Justice Department. We had detailees from a number of places. Uh, I was there as a DoD civilian at the time, so that was a good prep for um, what the process that I came into at the National Security Council it was a different set of issues, but at least yeah. the process was the same because um, we were elevating things and they were going basically directly to deputies committee meetings out of that uh, detention policy task force. So it was, uh, I just had, you know, kind of a interesting confluence of educational backgrounds, you know, the that made yeah. me appealing uh, to somebody that knew who I was and got into a position where he could hire. And then he, uh, he approached the guard and actually they asked, uh, or he asked the deputy director of the army guard, uh, even before they approached me to, to see whether the army would be willing to, or the army guard would be willing to put me on orders for a couple of years so I could go do that. So, uh, completely non-standard assignment process, right? I mean, this is, mm -hmm. Uh, it's very idiosyncratic how anybody gets detailed over to the uh, 
National Security Council staff. There are some positions where one agency or, or department always kind of always provides the replacement. Uh, so, for instance, there's a uh, director for strategic capabilities uh, in the defense policy directorate. It's always some nuclear officer either from the Air Force or the Navy. And DOD knows it has to fill that because it's one of the missions, uh, kind of the no-fail missions the National Security Council staff has to have people that, that talk strategic capabilities. Uh, another one was space, and it was always an Air Force officer. I think going forward, it's always going to be a Space Force officer now. Uh, and those are always, uh, they always send up one stars. So there's always a, a backfill. But most of the positions are, are much more nebulous in terms of what the exact portfolio is, because the portfolios just change by administration in terms of what their priorities are, what they want us to work. And so it's, it's very uh, subjective, depending on whatever the, yeah. the priorities of the president are, the national security advisor are, how big they want to make the staff. You know, again, we, we talked about, you know, do we want it to be more operational? Do we want it to just be policy? So even while I was in my, my 22 months there, uh, there was a time I thought I was actually going to have to curtail my tour because they were having the staff. And so uh, the current National Security Advisor came in and said, hey, I, I, don't want a, I don't want a large bloated organization. I want, he had it in his head, I want under 120 policy directors. So over the, at, when I first got there, we were up over 200. And so it was almost 50% cut in policy directors. Oh, wow. And so I was actually, I had already started working on my transition documents and, and then somebody else left in my office and the, uh, the, uh, actually the director left and the, 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 the new director that came in just, uh, said, oh, I'd like you to stay, uh, because you've got background that, you know, that I think I, I want to do more in, in your portfolio cashment with your set of skills, uh, and maybe not so much in some of these other areas that we're letting, uh, accepting more risk on. So, so yeah, it's, so it's uh, not, it's not as structured of an organization as, you know, just with the administration changes and whatnot. That's what I'm gathering. It is. It's, uh, and, and what, and like, I guess from what I understanding from your takeaway there is, you know, if you're wanting to pursue something like this, then you need to specialize in some unique field or, or capability I think that's, outside of your, I, I think that's right, and I would recommend, especially part-time officers, might have a, an advantage because you can bring in multiple skills that are potentially relevant. And you, you know, but going out and getting a PhD in something big plus, uh, you know, having a lot of you know professional expertise and experience in. Something besides just operational units is is going to be good. Uh, you know, if you if if what you've been doing is standard army stuff, uh, particularly on the full time side, I think it's hard to break out of. Hey, you know, I've got you know I got to go be an administrative officer for this type of unit, and this is my career field, and yeah. and particularly staying within states, I think that's that's going to be really limiting for people. Uh, that haven't been able to acquire a bunch of extra skills that kind of makes them a, a unique player um, just to stand out in the field essentially yeah, I think that's gonna be... so so we always ask sir people that are coming on the program like you know what's their well two questions one um, 
what advice do they have for young upcoming leaders in the National Guard just from your experience from a leader development perspective? And two, are there any resources that you've used or would recommend to, you know, leaders in the Guard, whether that's, you know, books or, you know, courses to study or whatever, you know, as far for development purposes? Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, leverage all the educational opportunities and don't sell yourself short. Try to avoid online type courses uh, if you can help it and go to the most rigorous institutions you can, uh, study hard sciences or something that's going to make you stand out if, because uh, I mean, not just for getting a job like what I had, it's a lot of it is just, you know, hey, look, these hard skills, be it cyber, be it, you know, math, science, engineering, medicine, these are the things that are more lucrative too, right? So yeah. do, and they're more lucrative because they're in higher demand. Uh, so do the things that are hard, uh, as hard as possible with an eye towards, you know, applicability to, to your civilian career. Uh, I would say for the guard, you know, don't forget that, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's tempting, hey, uh, I want to chase, you know, multiple ADOS jobs. Uh, I feel like some people, even I've been tempted to do it because I, I feel like, oh, well, it's, it's fun. It's a break from my civilian job. Um, it's comfortable. I just know, you know, I, I've got status as, a, as an officer. I don't have to like, you know, prove myself in, in ways that I'm not comfortable doing or in a new field. Um, so I, I, I tend, you know, if it's great if you're an AGR, great, you know, stick with that path. But if you are a, a part-time guard officer, you need to focus on your civilian career. <laughs> Or, or guard member, guard member at all. I mean, sorry, not just officer, but NCO, enlisted soldier. Make sure that you are taking care of that civilian career and building your portfolio, building your credential set, because that's really the the, the long game. So use everything the guard gives you, like I did. I used it for law school, uh, got a law degree, paid virtually nothing between a combination of state tuition waivers, tuition assistance. Uh, I took the then the GI Bill, which was pre 9-11 GI Bill. Unfortunately, it wasn't all that generous, but still, uh, that said, I, I walked away from law school with absolutely no debts. I think I paid, I paid for books and I had to pay for a, a transportation pass each quarter at the University of Washington that cost me $35. Uh, so I basically went through law school free because of the guard. Um, and then that's been what I've leveraged to do a bunch of other things since then. So. Uh, that's what I would say for any junior leader, junior soldier, that's, that's what you need to focus on. But while you're in uniform, be awesome. Yeah. You know, do the hard things in uniform too, because the, the, when you're trying to leverage your guard experience or your military experience out on the outside, yeah, sometimes you can get away with, oh yeah, I was a soldier, I was, you know, I did this and that. Um, and, and they'll just look at you like, yeah, sure, uh, soldier's a soldier, but the people that sort of know the difference are gonna ask, you know, hey, what'd you do? And if you can tell them, hey, look, I was, I was in this particular type of unit, I went to special forces training, I was a, a you know, air crew, you know, chief, I was, you know, an Apache pilot. I, you know, something that, uh, that actually resonates, then... Displaying excellence somewhere. Yeah, be, uh, do the things that, that require selectivity 
you know, go to ranger school, go to sapper school, do, do the hard stuff that makes you stand out uh, because you're, you'll be amazed how much that actually makes a difference when you're applying for civilian jobs later on too. So, uh, so again, be awesome, you know, try out for, for all the competitions, you know, be, be the super fit soldier. I mean, just whatever dimension that you have any kind of uh, aptitude in, push it as far as it, it can take you. So, um, that, that, that'd be my recommendation. Yeah, well, thank you, sir, for Absolutely. coming on and sharing some of your experience uh, with us here today. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed today, please visit our social media pages in the links below. Tune in to Leaders Recon over the next few weeks as we bring in today's leaders and pioneers to discuss their experiences, share their wisdom, and help you grow as a leader. We will also be announcing opportunities for you to sharpen your skills and expand your toolbox as members in today's Army National Guard. See you next time. If you liked today's episode of Leaders Recon, please don't forget to subscribe below and leave us a five-star review. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.